Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Father, we come to you just so beyond humble, just completely unworthy to be able to proclaim that, to be able to stand in that truth and know that you change our lives and that your name is worthy. It's worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Father, bless this time. Bless the reading of your word. Let your people hear. Let these be be your words, not mine. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Nickman. <laughs> hey guys. So, if you haven't met me, my name's Nick. I'm the fellow here. Um, uh, I'd love to meet you. Um, so we're going to start this with kind of a story, but I'm going to give you some time to look for Micah. So if you would turn in your word to Micah 2, whether that's physical, electronic, whatever, um, if you don't have a physical Bible, please come see me, Nathan, Kate, RJ. We would love to give you one. We would love to give you one. So we're going to start this with a story. Um, I used to work at this camp called World Song. I'm going to move this because that is in my way. I'm going to move more than that tonight. So I used to work at this camp called World Song, and it's up in Cook Springs, Alabama, which is absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Um, wherever Caroline Carter is, I saw her earlier. She went there a few times, and so she knows a lot of people I know, and that's like a weird connection to me, um, because that's like a very separate world to me. Um, but so I worked one summer as a cabin leader, which was like, I was in the cabin with the kids, um, and the next summer I worked as what was called our boys camp coordinator, and I was kind of like over all the dudes. Um, but in June, we didn't have dudes there. So I basically became a second maintenance man in the month of June, which was kind of terrible in the Alabama heat. But so we had this, this janky green golf cart, and this thing was gas-powered, and it was all sorts of messed up. We called it the Ratchet Mobile because that's, I mean, it was a fitting name. So I rode this thing everywhere. I eventually got too confident with it and started like whipping around turns like a race car. And it was gravel roads, so you could easily just like fishtail it. And so constantly was told, hey, chill out. Don't do that, because you're going to wreck it and get hurt. Um, so one night, I do take a turn too hard, and it ends up sort of like this. And so I don't know if you can tell. Um, that is a massive dent in a steel bar in the front from where I smashed into a pine tree. Um, like fishtailed into it, it caught straight into pine tree. Um, there's no, uh, there's nothing holding you in there, so it kind of flung me out. Um, it was a good time. Uh, and so, funny story, but why do I start with this? It sort of ties to last week. So last week we looked at how the Israelites actively sought out other gods and how how that idolatry affected them. And so 
we see that our reckless behavior, kind of this week, that reckless behavior of seeking things that aren't good and proper authority instruction can really lead to some terrible consequences. Um, so last week we had, like I said, we had a wonderful introduction to Micah from Kate. Um, and every time Kate like teaches or like even opens her mouth at Bible study, I'm always just very blessed by it. Kate's been a very big blessing in my life. If you do not know Kate, you definitely need to. So, yeah. um, so Micah's a prophet, and his name literally means who is like Yahweh. And so he's from this tiny town called Moresheth, and it's believed that he brought this prophecy around 8th century B.C., and we can kind of tell that by, like, the kings that are named, and so we can tell it's after the kingdoms have split, a lot of things. Um, so there was also lots of rampant idolatry, not like a little bit, like constantly everybody, everything. And so, as Kate put it, they were trying to have a third of God and two-thirds of something else, which gives you actually none of God. And so, a lot of us, we can kind of look at that and say, they still acknowledge, acknowledge God, and that's a lot of the worldview today is, there's an acknowledgement there, they were spiritual people, so they're good, right? Wrong. So completely wrong. So I'm in a wonderful class right now called Systematic Theology, and part of it is we talk about like attributes of God. And so one of them that we talked about very recently, actually, it's funny how God kind of like stacks things to kind of help you, um, is his aseity, which is spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y which is a fancy way of saying God is one, and he's very distinct. Oh, hero is real, your God is one, right? And so Herman Bovink, a Dutch reformer, kind of describes this, this like this, this attribute like this. By his perfection, he is at once, at once essentially and absolutely distinct from all creatures. And he kind of jumps down and continues, God is absolute being, the fullness of being, and therefore also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence. And so what does that mean? It means that God is one, and he demands that oneness be acknowledged. So the people of Israel were openly denying this attribute when they went down the path of idolatry. So recapping that, we're going to look more so towards ours, but transitioning there. Um, The first four commandments of the old covenant are the ones that tie us to God. So it's, tie us to God is probably the wrong way. It's our relation to God. So we have four and then the other six are relation to other people. And if we disregard God's presence, his aseity and his oneness or his oneness with those first four, then the crumbling of those next six are sure to follow. Um, it's been a hot minute since I've even read the Ten Commandments, so I'm certain most of us are in the same boat. Uh, so we've got a couple of them, and we're going to run through them. And so those ten are, you shall have no gods before me. And this is a paraphrase. Uh, these are all found in Exodus 22. Um, but it's the, the gist of each of the ten. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make or worship any idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And don't covet. Those first four 
like we saw if you go back to them, are very much how we relate to God. Uh, but especially that second one was where they were struggling with, um, with uh, the nation of Israel right now. And so we're going to look at Micah 2 now and see where, that, where they completely disregarded number 2. It leads to numbers 5 through 6, or 5 through 10, I'm sorry, being just completely um, not having a foundation to stand on. So let's look at Micah 2 now. Micah 2 says this. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in, power of their, it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses they take away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. For it will be a time of disaster. And that, in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately the people have risen as an enemy. You strip the rich robe off those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong Greek, he would be a preacher for these people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture. A noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate. Going out by it, their king, cast, their king passes before them. The Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all pray with me. Father, again, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to dig into it. I thank you for sending your prophet Micah to, to your people and showing us where, where they have fallen, so we may take it and we may learn. Please again, just bless my words. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, so looking at the start here, um, we don't really say woe to you to people. That's not really a common thing, but here uh, it's a common oracle within Old Testament prophets. Um, it's got its own kind of set apart uh, almost like a genre, but not quite. And it's a divine threat, but it wasn't like, I'm going to get you. It was, I'm going to get you, and here's why. Um, so, I mean, it, it wasn't an empty threat. It was well thought out, and it was well needed. Um, but looking further, we see in the first verses here, we see, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in the beds. 
When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of the hand. So we have three very, very intentional verbs here, right? Devise, work, perform. And we see these people have so much just evil built up inside them and want for it, they can't even sleep at night. They put the pieces in place and execute however they can. So the point is it's well thought out, right? And it's not just to some other random people. It's to their peers, right? Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary says, if covetous reigns in the heart, compassion is banished. And when the heart is thus engaged, violence and fraud commonly occupy the hands. The path of the people has really turned towards idols. And with that, there are consequences with their actions along with their thoughts. Idol worship, idol worship ultimately puts our gaze away from God and thus by our nature to self, self and love of self. This leads to self-preservation. And once that roots itself in our hearts, bears the fruit of self-service. Jesus in Matthew 22, um, kind of jumping around, He's questioned by some some religious leaders of the day, and they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, right? And his response is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these, the whole law is built. And we see the order here is very important because it it shows if one's not done, the other's not going to happen. If we do not love God, then the second is not replaced with a loving obedience. It's replaced with duty. And it's replaced with, I have to do this, not because I love the Lord, not because I see that the Lord our God set us free from Egypt and has made a path for us, laid out a promised land for us, and we completely just looked away from him and said, that's not good enough. I don't trust you. And I'm still not going to trust you today whenever you tell me, This is good. This is for your good. We saw this turn from obedience to duty quickly lead to a very sinful nature amongst the people. Then what's God's response to that, right? Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. For it will be a time of disaster, and that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Here God starts to bring out what I call the holy kneecap buster. Um, It's like a baseball bat, and he's like, all right, you're going to learn a lesson or two, um, whether you like it or not, and it's going to make it so your stride and your gait's going to be brought low, because it's what you need. We saw in chapter one the the, the use of what made the people proud to bring them low is continued here. The language here... Here in three is like a yoke that fixes them in a path and removes their control and humbles them, but not the light yoke that comes through God and through the Lord and through his law, but an iron one that weighs us down and says, you're not moving. 
The power of these evil plotters is stripped and their gates are made to reflect it. We notice how they're addressed here. He doesn't say my family. He doesn't say Jacob. He doesn't say Israel like he usually does when he refers to them. The word he uses is this, this family. So we serve an intentional God. I feel that's very intentional. Um, so these, these evildoers that have focused so much on robbing the land and the possession of others from God's people are going to be cut off. He doesn't say my people. He says this family, implying they are not his. If that weren't enough, verse 4 continues with the idea of a taunt song. And that was something that kind of made me chuckle as I was reading it. But it's kind of meaning like a proverbial negative saying, like, you know, like, curiosity killed the cat. Or like, if you think, like, everybody had, like, a person in their hometown that was probably just, like, really dumb. And they were like, you don't want to end, like, end up like Jimmy. He does, he does some things. <laughs> but it also brings to my mind, like, I'm a big soccer guy. Um, like British soccer songs, how they like will pick out players and they'll be like, oh, this guy's got a big nose. We're going to rail on him. And so they'll like be singing songs about people's nose size. It's horrible, but it's also really funny at the same time. It's like, Phew, it's rough. Go watch British soccer. It's a good time. But the point here, what's the point? They'll be known as not being God's people right? God sets us aside, and he set his Israelites aside and gave them laws and gave them their place so that they would be set apart, and they would be different, and they would be holy like him. And we're seeing here that God's saying, that's not going to happen anymore because of the nature of how you're acting, of what you've placed as the center of your heart, what you've idolized, has truly pulled you so far away from me that you will be an outcast in my kingdom. The end of four into five says, he changes the portion of my people, how he removes me from it. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Um, this one really made me like scratch my head. Uh, luckily, my Bible had a cross-reference here to Joshua 14, 1-2, and it, it gives us a better idea of what he's saying. Joshua 14 says this, These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's house of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by law, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine and one-half tribes. This is an alluding, they allude to each other, where Micah alludes to Jeremiah here in saying, if you refuse my covenant, your actions will pull you from my kingdom. My justice, God is looking at them and saying, my justice will not be quenched. Verse 6, we, we see a shift happen. So we'll read 6 through 11. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. 
should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass you trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for these people. So we see in verse 6, what do they ask for? Silence. Because they think judgment is not coming. And they don't want to hear it. They say, we're going to turn our ears from it. Because all we know is this false hope that solely because I descend from Abraham, I am good. Nothing will charge, charge me for my blatant disregard for the law. My bill won't come due because my last name. And we say, wow, that's dumb, but we do it every single day. I know so many people, the number of times I've heard, I guess I'm a Christian because like I go to church and like I grow up in a Christian home and like I kind of, you know, I'm connected, I'm spiritual, ooh, I'm this. But this is so far from the truth. Scripture tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one, but the gift of God is eternal life. But how do we get there? Let's sit on this for a second. Unless your faith is your own, not your mom's, not your dad's, not your grandmother's, not your grandfather's, your preacher, whoever you look towards as a spiritual authority in your life, they're good to have, but their faith is not yours. Let's say that again. Their faith is not yours. Unless your faith is your own, you will not be saved. Romans 10 tells us, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There has to be a personal laying down of your life and accepting of God's covenant. Seven, we see continued display of the folly of these people from where they don't realize this and they don't grasp that truly they have to be their own with this. They say, they see the law not as good, but as a duty, a chore, a weight, a constraint. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 tells us, blessed is the man who who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor, sorry, I had this one memorized for a few days. I tried to do it, but now I'm going to read it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The law was not delightful for these people because they had other things occupying place one, occupying the sinner, not even place one. It's not like a one, two, three, ooh, we can kind of like, you know, make our list. It's you have one thing, one thing can really occupy the center of your life. It's either God or it's something else. It's God or your schoolwork. It's God or your boyfriend 
or your girlfriend or whatever. It's God or that sin that you've been hiding from everybody and you're like, please, nobody bring light to this. What are you placing there? Looking at these next verses. Um, We're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, Anybody have a favorite turn your brain off show? Like you watch it and it's like, man, I can just be a vegetable for a second. All right. I, I need that time in my life. Christian, who I live with, has seen that a few times of walking in and me just like, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, but it's good for you. Well, <laughs> mine is a little bit older cartoon called Adventure Time, which I, I know most of y'all know of probably. And I know it's dumb. But man, it is a good, I can watch this and turn my brain off. Now I bring this up because verse 8 makes me think of this very specific episode where there's this thing called the City of Thieves. And they walk in and they're trying to like help this girl get her flower basket back or something. I don't know. I don't know. I turn my brain off for it. <laughs> and the whole time... They walk in, from the second they walk in, it's like someone steals my hat, someone steals my ring, someone steals my, and it's like back and forth people like running in and out of frame, stealing stuff from everybody. Like someone will take something, run five yards and get it stolen from them. And like as I read this, it's really the picture that I see with this as I know it's a goofy example, but like we see this city where the people of God are supposed to be these helpful and hospitable people. These people know that, that Genesis tells us that God created them in his own image, man and woman, he created them. He knows that, they know that Imago Day is within them, and they're treating them like trash. Their land was supposed to be safe and easy travel. People were supposed to look on to Canaan, and say, we can go through that because the Israelites are there. But instead it turned to a place that, man, we don't turn through there. Where is your heart there? Is it to let other people view you and see you and say, this person is going to be safe passage? Is your love for others elevated so that they can truly see God through every single thought, word, and action you have? Or do they look at you and say, yeah, they go to church, but also they are kind of slanderous um, and a whole slew of other things? What's the image you give? Because it kind of reflects your heart. We get to verse 9. And anytime I see women or children marginalized, my blood gets really hot, your blood should get really hot, and you should get a little, little angry at somebody. Like, not even kidding. That is like a good way to get me like genuinely angry, which does not happen. And at first glance, we say, wow, that's terrible. And it is terrible how we, they talk about like kicking women out of their houses and things like that. And children losing their inheritance. But it goes a little deeper than we like can really see at first glance. Uh, we kind of can assume 
that there's no mention of a husband when he's talking about these women. So, so we're assuming a little bit that they're widows and we take these widows and we take everything from them because they have no man there to defend them with this time. And so now we have this widow that has nothing with this child of this widow that also has nothing because his mother has nothing. Because that, just to survive, usually how that would work in this time is he would sell himself into slavery and usually somewhere else. So you take it and you say, these children are sold off to a foreign land with no knowledge of God other than his name was what was used for a reason for people to take everything he had. His name was used as the the power for the men to take everything from him. Which leads me to kind of a a thought here that we see kind of today. Um, So we know the church, the big C, is the body of the redeemed believers in Christ. But it is full of imperfect people. I love all y'all. Y'all all sin every single day. I sin every single day. Everybody back there does. Everybody that cleans this building does. Everybody that sits in an office, anything in between. We all do. We know that. That's part of why we're here. Is because we understand we are sinful, broken people. And this is a place that is a hospital for lost souls that need the healing. But we're going to do some dumb things. Like, we're going to try our best, but we're going we're gonna to mess up. I mess up every single day, like we just fleshed out a little bit. But from this passage, we can see these people clearly using God and God's laws as excuses to rob others, both physically, spiritually, and mentally. And like, if that's you... Check yourself right now. Examine yourself and say, where am I doing that? Am I doing that? Because like a woe oracle, like we said, was a divine threat. And it was saying, you need to change. And if you're here and you felt that weight of someone using the name of Jesus to like push some sort of thought idea on you that wasn't scripture. If, we, if someone has told you anything other than Jesus went through a shameful nailing to a cross for our sake, then like, beloved, I'm sorry, but like, that's not what this is. And I really do feel for you, but Jesus does more so because that's what he went through. He had the religious people pin him to the cross. It wasn't, it wasn't the commoners that brought him to, to Pilate. It was the Jewish high court, right? Transitioning into 10. Many people use this verse as a, as a kind of, yeah, the world's not our home kind of thing, which is true. Um, not really what this verse is going for. So people kind of turn it and flip it into a happy-go-lucky, the world's not our home. Um, no, we're still, in, we're still in the rough waters here of God kind of saying, y'all are terrible. Um, it's condemnation. 
because they've tainted the promised land, this land where they were supposed to have rest, where they were supposed to have milk and honey after the desert, has turned into a wicked place from their constant, deliberate, evil actions. These people saw that God was forcefully obligated to them and that they had no really duty on their end of the covenant. They had no reason to do anything other than just be because it's already been set up. But they would soon have a rude awakening. The rebuke of of the people is kind of capped within this specific oracle with the state of preaching they receive. It talks about it being empty, about it being like the wind. No call to change, no call to deeper relation with God. Just eat, drink, and be merry. And we see that that is just completely the opposite. Luckily, we're in a place where I feel like we are surrounded with people who faithfully preach the word. And don't try and put their own thoughts, ideas in it, but truly say, this is what it says. But if that's the case, anywhere you go, run. Do not stay there. That is a place where spiritual uh, growth goes to be ended. The The delusion that surely nothing will bad happen to us would continue their downward spiral. We've talked a lot about bad things, though. Um, Luckily, we're at chapter 12 now, or verse 12 now, which gets into a lot of hope that's brought here. And it says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out of it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. We see joy once the covenant is in right relation again. We won't be able to help but explode with thanksgiving and joy and praise when we are truly connected again with our Savior, when we are truly gathered, when we're truly home. One commentator puts it like this, the Lord would not only bring them forth from captivity and multiply them, but the Lord Jesus would open their way to God by taking him upon him the nature of a man and by the work of his spirit in their hearts, breaking the fetters of Satan. Thus he has gone before and the people follow, breaking in his strength through the enemies that would have stopped their way to heaven. So if you're you're new here, you've got to be, you may be saying, so how does this sort of happen? Um, we have a word for that. It's called, for what, what's happening here, it's called the gospel. And that word simply means good news. But what is that good news? Um, it starts off with some bad news that we all sin. Scripture tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the right payment for those sins is death and disconnection from God for eternity. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to this earth to live a perfectly sinless life and to be the perfect payment of our sins by dying on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. Romans 10 tells us 
how we, how we receive that is to believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. And I really urge you, if you don't know that truth, if you don't know that, that truly good news, please come talk to like me, RJ, Kate, Nathan, anybody on our leadership team. We would love to, because that's the way that you go from living in this idolatrous, sinful life that's going to do nothing but pull you away from God. It's going to promise you so many good things and leave you empty and empty and empty over and over and over. Instead, gives you meaning, gives you purpose, gives you a life worth living. Micah shows us that culture will fail us. Self-service and self-gain will fail us over and over. They may seem fun for a second, but they are empty and will leave you empty and tossed by the wind. Hope is found solely in Christ and trusting in him to be our Lord and Savior. Fullness, fullness of life is digging our heels into the gospel and saying, I'm going to live as Jesus says by living a life defined by loving God and loving neighbor. When we do this, when we place our love of God in the center, in its right place, then we become just a bright beacon of the gospel. And we can truly feel what it is to live fully for both now and forever. Y'all pray with me. Father, we thank you.